welcome to the 8th episode of The Weekly Pleb. I'm your host, Douglas Rieger. This week I spoke with art historian and museum curator Amanda Dotseth. She specializes in medieval Spain, but talks to me about some more recent turmoil in the nation's history that I think is relevant to today's society. Human history is so important to know because if we aren't aware of the mistakes we've made before, they are bound to happen again. Even though Amanda has written several art history books, I wanted to ask her about one in particular today that analyzes this massive 500-year-old altarpiece from the Ciudad of Rodrigo in Spain. I wanted to ask her about this in particular because it is on display at the University of Arizona Museum of Art right here in Tucson. So if you're in Tucson, I definitely suggest going to check it out. I want to give out a huge thank you to everybody that supports this podcast by subscribing, liking my videos, or even just telling your friends. I wouldn't be able to keep this up without you, and it's reassuring to know that there are other people who do want to learn things beyond what the mainstream media pushes on your timelines. Okay, okay, I'm going to shut up now, so let's get into the interview. My guest expert today is museum curator from the Meadows Museum at Southern Methodist University in Texas, Amanda Dotson. How are you, Amanda? Fine, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here. <laughs> so how did you first get into history and art? Uh, well, gosh, the, I, I, always, I guess I always liked history in school. Um, I always preferred it to math. Um, but the defining factor, I guess, was I'm an only child and I had, um, so my parents had exchange students that lived with us when I was young. And one of them was from Spain. Her name is Norma and we're still very close. She lived with my family when I was about 12 and I visited her and her family in Spain the following year. And so that was the first exposure I had to pre-modern art, I would say. So medieval art in particular but I really came at it because I fell in love with Spain. So I fell in love with Spain and the food and the people um, before, I, before I fell in love with maybe history as a topic or art as a topic. And so it wasn't until I started university at the University of Arizona um, that I, maybe my sophomore year, I think it was, um, wanted to take an art history class and to do so I had to declare a major so I declared a major and then I just never left. <laughs> awesome well I, I like that you fell in love with the country and it stemmed from there. Yeah. So you said you focus on medieval Spain right? That's my so, special specialty yes. So I'm curious what impact did medieval the medieval Spanish Castile era have on Catholicism and religion? Well, it, I think the, on modern Catholicism, I guess the, the impact would be that the Catholic church is one very steeped in history. It's one that's very aware of its past. It's um, one that is very scholarly and kind of studies the um, previous writings of not only say biblical text or scripture but of what are called the church fathers so there's a lot of ways of course that the modern catholic church diverges from medieval practice or um, even early modern practice but there's a lot of ways also where um, those you know traditions survive so things 
that happened in um, in the Middle Ages. So certain reforms like Gregorian reform, let's say, which is a particular moment in the history of the church where things like clerical celibacy were enforced for the first time um, that have carried through to the modern day. And so there's a lot of things that if you're trying to understand some of the debates in the current Catholic church, um, you can look to the Middle Ages to see to see where they come from. In fact, the, the previous Pope, um, Benedict XVI, who's, who of course quite famously abdicated, uh, one of his strengths, oddly enough, was he was a very good medieval scholar um, and he published extensively on writings of the medieval church. And so if, if that gives you any idea of, you know, you have a current Pope who was trained and educated in medieval history, I think, that, that that's a kind of really concrete example. Um, there's also just a lot of, again, a lot of things about the church that were shaped in this early period. And in many cases, you know, the church always is reinventing itself and, and reevaluating its rules and, and changing. Um, but there's a lot of things that haven't changed <laughs> since the middle ages. So um, a lot of times I think by looking to the past, you can understand the present. Definitely. I couldn't agree more with that. But one of my favorite quotes is, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah, I think that's, a, Mark that's Twain. perfect. Exactly. Yeah. It, it may not be the same characters or the same yeah. exact situation, but it, it sure feels familiar. <laughs> well, we like, we like to say that everything that happens to us now is unique, and it is quite literally unique in that we're dealing with a different set of circumstances, a different period of time, a different environment, different personalities, but that doesn't mean it's unprecedented, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah. The ideas are still written in books and floating around in people's heads. Totally. Yeah. Even if they don't know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for people that don't know much about Spanish history, um, maybe I, I want to ask you from the start, you mentioned that there's new or recent research about Columbus and his motivations or reasons for coming to find the new world. What's that sure. all about? Yeah, there's, um, there's been a great kind of push in studies about um, not, not just Columbus, but even the, the conquest of the Americas in general. And this is partly, I think, driven by you know, just like everything else, certain things in scholarship are fashionable at different moments. And right now there is a great um, kind of renaissance, let's say, of studies that deal with the history of Latin America or the history of the Americas and, you know, relationships between indigenous populations and, and, um, and uh, the kind of imperial forces that, that shaped them. Um, and one of the things, of course, uh, you caught me off guard enough that I don't have the name of the scholars in my mind, but there was a recent publication that dealt a little bit with um, what shapes, what shaped Christopher Columbus's personal ideology that would have motivated him to go to the Americas. So not just what was a motivation from a kind of political standpoint, this kind of the, the common narrative about God, gold, glory, right? This is, of course, a factor, at always. Um, but the kind of new interpretation that I've been reading about lately 
um, with great, great interest is focusing more on the God, <laughs> one of those three G's in that, in that not only was Columbus, but the people who sent him, so Isabella and Ferdinand were very much motivated by the question or by wanting to make sure that the entire planet could be converted to Catholicism. So of course, Christopher Columbus didn't know he was going to find the Americas. He didn't know he was going to find these indigenous populations that were completely unknown to the uh, medieval and early modern world. Um, he thought he was of course gonna, gonna get a little bit further and end up in, in um, India. But those were still people who would need to be converted from what they thought Islam to, um, to Christianity and not just Christianity, because of course we're also dealing with to some extent the Protestant Reformation at this moment, but to the right kind of Christianity. So to, um, to Catholicism specifically. So there's in this case, a kind of particular ideological motivation um, that is outside of, of the gold question, the kind of the avarice of, of looking for money, um, which was a bonus, of course, to find some, you know, great silver mines and gold mines in the Americas, but also a, a very clear um, desire to create a world that is homogenous in terms of religion. So, and this is important, of course, because especially as the year 1500 approached, um, 1500 was this year that was seen as a, a momentous moment, a possible trigger for the apocalypse and, and all these things. And one of the things that signaled the coming of the end of times and, and the last judgment from the, the book of Revelation, so the final book of the Christian Bible, was that the entire population of the world would accept Christ and would be Catholic. And so he's pushing that agenda along. So he's saying, okay, if I can get, if I can take part and I can get um, the entire world to be Catholic, then that we're moving this larger Christian agenda forward. And the other part of the argument that, that has been interesting, I think as well, is it argues that Christopher Columbus's worldview wasn't just shaped by this desire to make everyone Catholic, but also to make sure people weren't Muslim. Because this is of course, anyone who knows anything about the kind of history of the Mediterranean in this period and you know around 1500, is that Spain is constantly at war with the Ottoman Empire. Um, this is when all these great stories of the Knights of Malta are coming out, you know, and, and the Knights of St. John and Malta and, and you know, even um, Carlos uh, V, Charles V, who's Isabella and Ferdinand's grandson is fighting wars in North Africa. And it's all in this context of a kind of larger war between Christianity and Islam. So think crusades, which are further back in time, fast forward to now the Ottoman Empire and still this kind of struggle between Christianity and Islam, um, which I hope for some of your listeners resonates today. Um, and, and so this is all in, in Christopher Columbus's mind, in Isabella and Ferdinand's mind as they're sending them to the new world. And also 
This is also the same year, 1492, quite famously, Jews are expelled from Spain, right? But it's also the year that Isabella and Ferdinand and Christopher Columbus is there to help as a kind of military person um, to conquer the kingdom of Granada in the south of Spain. So remember, Islam has been a major presence in, in Spain and in Iberia for 800 years. And Isabella and Ferdinand in 1492, early in the year in like January, they conquer Granada. So all of these things come together as this sort of divine symbol that Catholicism will prevail. And this is all in Christopher's mind when he's pleading with Isabella to give him money and ships to go to the new world. And when he gets there and meets these indigenous people who he assumes are Muslim somehow and says, okay, time to get to converting. <laughs> and, and nowadays the, the church is begging kids my age on social media to please come come to mass or Are come they? to anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. you know, at least so, you're not a Muslim, Douglas. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that's been a trend historically then. The the church solidifying their their influence, continuously trying to spread across the world, maybe yeah. not so um feverishly as uh the Mormons, but still <laughs> pretty big deal to them, right? Mission, th this, what I'm saying is not necessarily different today. The, the mentality, the, the idea is still once everybody has had the opportunity to become a Christian, this would in theory trigger the end of times, right? Um, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to speak to contemporary theological issues. It's well outside of my area of expertise, but um, this, this is behind the missionary efforts that would certainly take place in Columbus's wake um, and in the salvation, the idea that you're going to save these indigenous populations um, by through their conversion, essentially. I want you to tell me a little bit about the church's influence behind Franco Ferdinand uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, Between Francisco Franco? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Francisco Franco, not Ferdinand. Sorry, I got the, <laughs> got the two mixed up. A few hundred there's years Franco's, difference. There's Ferdinand's, yeah. there's Francisco's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so what? who was he? Uh, for the, I think a lot of people don't understand who he was, what was going on in Spain at the time, because it was overshadowed by World War II, Hitler, exactly. Mussolini, things like that. So tell me a little bit, a bit about him and what he did. Sure. So... Um... The quick and dirty background is the 19th century in Spain was um, very tumultuous. Um, again, as someone who really focuses more on the 12th century, when I started studying the 19th, I found it profoundly depressing um, because the century sort of starts off with, um, with the Napoleonic Wars, so with um, Napoleon's invasion of Spain, and then it ends, the century ends with the Spanish-American War, which is, of course, when Spain loses its colonies in the Philippines and um, in the Americas, and America gains them, right? This is the background for America's um, own empire and um, relationship with the Philippines, with Cuba, with Puerto Rico. 
Um, so that's sort of bracketing the 19th century in Spain. It, it's like starts off with bad news and ends with bad news. Um, and in between, there's even more bad news, which is you have a very kind of depressed rural population, um, high illiteracy rates, um, that sort of thing. And um, this constant struggle in, in the Spanish government, um, this tension between one faction, a Republican faction that wants to be progressive, um, that is responding to the ideas of the Enlightenment. So think, think the French Enlightenment and like Les Miserables and, and all of this. And you have this faction that's really trying to promote a more progressive agenda um, in Spain. And to some extent, that means moving away from the, the Catholic Church and what was to these progressives a culture for kind of superstition and, and ignorance. Um, and so you have this on one side. And then on the other side, and I hope this sounds familiar to <clears throat> everyone listening, on one side, you have this progressive. On the other side, you have a very traditional conservative view that, um, that, that is sort of pushing for things to stay the same and for the church to continue to have the influence it had in the country, to continue to control education, for example. Um, and, and so there's this tension throughout the century and it plays out in government in that at different periods of time, the monarchy, the Republican government had, are in control. And there are various sort of wars and wars with maybe, you know, a lowercase w um, that deal with the line of succession, the Carlist wars, but also just, it's just a very tumultuous time um, for Spain. And, you know, depending on what year or what month you look at, you could find a different government in power. Um, then, so as we get to the end of the century, you have the Spanish-American War, and then in the early decades of the 20th century is, again, this tension is still happening. You have a kind of progressive Republican side who's pulling away from the Catholic Church, and then you have a more conservative traditional side. And from the uh, General Franco um, was on this more conservative side, perhaps not surprisingly coming from the standpoint of the military. So he was a general in the Spanish military. And in this tension, you have the Republicans kind of aligning themselves more with, with communism. You have Franco aligning himself more with these growing fascist nationalist movements in, in Europe. So these are the movements that led to the rise of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and all of this. So these are all currents that are kind of bubbling up in the, in the 30s in Europe. And it just so happens in Spain that Francisco Franco um, posed a military coup in the early 30s, late 20s, early 30s. And um, this blossomed into a full out civil war in which, in which case you have Republicans who are loosely backed by, um, by communist governments and you know anyone who's read their Hemingway, if you've read For Whom the Bell Tolls, this is the this is the moment we're talking about. Is this this conflict between between the First World War and the Second World War, um, where Spain has these two kind of political factions, and 
to some extent, they're fighting for the future ideology of Spain. Are they going to be a, you know, secular um, society, uh, one that is progressive? Um, or are they going to kind of retrench in, in what has been their past and the, the kind of close affiliation with the Catholic Church? Um, long story short, of course, Franco wins. And, you know, the, the kind of famous episodes of the Spanish Civil War that, that maybe you've heard of. So the bombing of Guernica, for example, which was, of course, famously depicted by Pablo Picasso in that huge mural, um, which is now in Spain. And of course, this is evidence of Franco's alignment with Hitler and basically Hitler using this small town in Spain's Basque country as a testing ground for the kind of weapons that he would then later use in the Second World War. And Franco making the proverbial deal with the devil to do that because it supported his agenda and certainly helped him um, come out victorious in that war. Um, you know, Franco didn't die till 1975. So it's a very <laughs> different mentality than what you see with, say, Nazi Germany or fascist Italy, where, um, you know, there was enough foreign intervention, essentially, by, by the United States and others, and, and Britain, of course, um, and, and the allies came out victorious and whatever. But in Spain, that wasn't the case, and the war ended in 39. So it sort of ended before the Second World War really kicked off. And, you know, we always joke one of the only good things Franco did is he kept Spain out of the Second World War. But by then the deal had, was, had been done, as it were. And so Spain basically had a fascist dictator between 1939 and 1975. I mean, let that sink in. <laughs> hmm, a pro progressive uh, fight versus a conservative fight during a yeah. polarized era. I can't, I don't know why that sounds so familiar to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what was the Valle, the Valle de Kairos? Oh, gosh. And, and what, why is it controversial? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that adds perfectly to, to the story of Franco. Um, and one that, that, that we've, we, we meaning art historians talking, it have really dealt with a lot. And I think um, it ties in perfectly with some of the debates happening in America right now about say civil war monuments, American civil war monuments. So Valle de los Caídos, which literally means Valley of the Fallen was a kind of one of Franco's post-war vanity projects, let's say, but he meant it to be a, um, a kind of uh, reconciliation. This was his intention was, you know, brother against brother, we have this horrible war, so many people died. Let me build this thing that represents a sort of unification of, of the Spanish people. Um, now that you've heard me talk about the Spanish Civil War and the two factions, it may, um, you can see why people might, by at least the Republican side would be outraged by the form it took, which was a monastery, literally a Catholic monastery with a big cross. I mean, you can see the thing from the highway when you drive north out of Madrid and 
If you haven't seen a photo of it, Google it because it is, it is not subtle. <laughs> it is very intentionally located quite close to what was Philip II's. So we're going back in time here um, to the fifth, fourth, no, 14th century. Philip II, no, sorry, what did I just say? 16th century. Philip II's palace, which was a palace monastery, because that sounds like fun, right? You know, yay, palace with some monks. So he's very, very deliberately situating this new monastery next to a much older monastery with a king who is known for being pious, right? So and it's also a burial, a place of burial. So his idea that this was going to be a reconciliatory gesture was by burying both the Republican and fascist dead in this place, right? So it'd be with a, a cross over all of them. With a big old cross and a bunch of monks. It's basically like saying, oh, we're all happy together again, but we'll pray for you. Wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. And then on top of it, he builds it by using Republican prisoners of war. So, <laughs> I mean, it's like insult to injury. So you're just like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You're saying this is supposed to unify the country and bring everyone together, but you're using essentially slave labor from the people who lost. Then you're burying the, the Republican dead at this place. And, you know, I always think these poor people must still be rolling in their graves to, you know, to have been everything they believed and fought for and then being buried in this uber Catholic, uber um, fascist monument, right? And so, and, and keep in mind, we're talking about, we're talking about the early forties when this is built, right? So the people, people related to, you know, um, the the Republican dead who are buried there are still alive. You know, they still there know Uncle, what's his name, is, you know, or whoever is buried at this hideous site, which, by the way, I've never visited in person because I've never been able to psych myself up. <laughs> like, um, And then on top of all of that, Franco has himself buried there. <laughs> so like, you just imagine, because of course he has himself buried there. So the monks can pray for his soul for, you know, ever. So what's controversial about this site, um, I probably don't even have to tell you now why this site is controversial. There are relatives of the Republican dead who are still alive, who know that their relatives are buried there. There are the prisoners, the Republican prisoners of war who helped build it. Many of them died while building it. And so they're there. Franco himself, until very recently, I don't know if you saw in the news, was also buried there. They, they not that long ago, um, exhumed his body and moved it to his family's plot. But it's deeply controversial, and this came up very recently. I was at a, a seminar a few years ago in Madrid. The, the fabric of the building is actually having some issues. So it's, there are structural issues. And the question is, what do you do about it? Do you repair it? Do you tear the whole damn thing down? Because, you know, mm. um, and, and, and there's a kind of stalemate there about what to do with this site um, from, from the state level and from the level of this is, this is patrimony, right? This is still national patrimony. And it's important to the history of Spain as vile as it is. 
um, and then add a whole new layer, which is, is still an active monastery. So the Catholic Church has a stake. Um, and you also have to think of the other side of the, of course, there's relatives uh, that are upset that they have family there. But I'm sure there's probably some relatives that are very proud that oh, their families totally. are buried on the other side of it, right? Or absolutely, or, vice versa. or maybe they're not so, proud. But you know, there's there's a lot at stake on both. But don't sides. dig them up. Yeah. yeah, and and anytime you're you're dealing with exhuming human remains, it it it's really tricky. Um, and this has happened a lot. This this has been an issue in Spain a lot as well for the exhumation of these mass burials, particularly mass Republican burials across Spain. So this is when, you know, someone lost a battle and the army just threw all the bodies into a kind of mass grave. And, and this of course became very famous because one of these mass graves is thought to be where the very, the famous poet Garcia Lorca is, Garcia Lorca is buried. And so now you have a kind of national treasure who is possibly in one of these mass graves, which adds a whole new kind of layer to the problem. And his descendants are still alive to weigh in. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a big, it's a big mess. Um, and I think everybody's, you know, Spain is still kind of reconciling this history again. I mean, you think about the distance we have from the civil war, our civil war, um, which of course was in the 1860s. And we're still reconciling that past and we're still trying to decide what, you, what we do with, with the monuments, um, both from that era and the monuments created in the 20th century that referred to that era. And we're still kind of reconciling that dialogue. This is a much more recent past for Spain. And so I think, you know, it's understandable to some extent that they're, that they're kind of dealing with all of these issues now. Um, still dealing with them and there's no there's no clear solution but there's kind of baby steps in the sense that Franco's out of there already but now what there's something with these fascists Pol Pot Hitler Franco they they like mass graves for some reason mass graves <laughs> and really big monuments <laughs> so yeah and you know I part of me wants to see the thing bulldoze to the ground because you gross but at the same time you know I you know, it's like that iconic image of the st statue of Saddam Hussein being pulled down in the in the Second Gulf War, and you know, you you kind of on some level feel good seeing that because you're 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 thinking, oh, you know, great, this is things are going to be better, you know, or things are better. Um, but you know, as an art historian, that's still an object, and that's still a, a work of art that has some sort of value, as vile as it is, and you know censoring or forgetting our past doesn't get us anywhere either. Yeah, that's my biggest fear is erasing the worst parts of history. Generations from now, they're just not going to know about those parts of history. And then similar things are going to happen again, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm curious. I have one, one more question. With, with the, the, it seems like the Catholic Church kind of backed Franco, right? Or, or at least helped him out. So is there any other cases, I can't think of any, where the church kind of backed fascism or extreme conservatism? Um, other than the evangelical church? I mean, probably. I mean, I also don't want to paint this as 
so black and white in the sense that in the Spanish Civil War, there were a number of Republican priests as well. Um, but institutionally, the church was at the very least complicit in or complacent in what Franco, Franco's agenda was, which on some level makes sense because he was saying Spain should remain a Catholic nation. Um, and, you know, that that is for the greater good. In, in theory, if you if you are a Christian and believe that. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church in particular and evangelical churches have certainly supported a number of progressive issues over, over time as well. Um, I can't think of a good example in the modern period where you have, it, it where you have such a kind of close alliance, let's say, with the with the Catholic Church and with a um, a military coup, um, you know, I'm sure there is maybe there are examples, and I I just am not as familiar with them. But you know, again, it you take the you know, there's bad and good in this scenario. I think the the issue in the in the case of the the church and the Spanish Civil War is, at least in more recent periods, is that there has been a kind of disconnect in the way the Republican dead have been treated, whether Catholic or not, whether priest or not, and the, the um, those who died on the Catholic or on the uh, Franco side. So um, for example, the declaration of individuals as martyrs, right? Which means you've died for your faith um, has, been, has been granted to one side and not the other. So this is where there's still these kind of controversial issues that, um, that have been raised with not just Spain reconciling its civil war and reconciling this part of the episode in its past, but also the church reconciling this part of its past. Um, you know, the, the church has made great strides, I would say in recent decades, in, in terms of sort of issuing apologies for things like, you know, pogroms and genocides and, and um, you know, the crusades and stuff like that. And Spain too, you know, Spain recently offered citizenships to citizenship to the descendants of Jews who were expelled in, in 1492. So, you know, it's like thanks. Yeah. Five, six hundred years later, yeah, thanks. Right. I'm not coming over there, but exactly. Yeah. And it's like, okay, maybe this doesn't make practical changes, but it is a kind of kind of evidence of a reconciliation or a reckoning with with these atrocities of the past. Um, you know, we'll probably see more as years go on, and particularly in terms of the Americas. Um, but uh, it, it's, I think it's kind of slower moving when it comes to more recent past. I mean, if it took, what, 500 plus years for, <laughs> for this, for the Spanish government to offer citizenship to, to, you know, Jews expelled in 1492, we perhaps might not be able to, <laughs> to fully expect <laughs> You know, you know, the same kind of reconciliation to happen for something, you know, that took place in the 1930s. So, um, yeah. so I, I can't, I mean, again, I mean, someone who, who is more specialized perhaps in the, in church history might be able to, 
to have a good example for you. But, um, and, you know, I certainly don't want to paint, I don't want to paint the Catholic Church as a, as a, you know, terrible institution by any means, because, um, but certainly the alliance in this case is not perhaps um, the best. Okay. So before we finish up here, I want you to tell me a little bit about your book and oh. what you did to get it together and kind of what it's about. So then anyone listening can look it up and find it online. Buy it. <laughs> yeah, they don't get buy it. <laughs> They're not for free. It's called Fernando Gallego and his workshop, the altarpiece from Ciudad Rodrigo. Don't, don't worry about that. Oh, okay. I have, I have my I have my methods. Okay. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your book. Sure. So this is a project I worked on now quite some time ago. Between really, it was the product of work done between about two thousand four and two thousand eight. Um, that was the result of a collaboration between the Meadows Museum and the University of Arizona. Um, Art Museum, UAMA, Museum of Art, University of Arizona Museum of Art, um, which has in its possession this amazing, um, what's left of this amazing uh, retablo or altarpiece from a, a town on the, close to the border between Spain and Cor Portugal called Ciudad Rodrigo. And it's, if whoever's listening to this is in Tucson or cares about the University of Arizona, I do encourage you to go see it. It's really, it's really something else. There's something like 25, 26 panels um, and, and they're huge. You know, they're a meter tall by half a meter wide, more or less um, painted on wood pan panel um, that left Spain in the 19th century and then ended up in the US via, via England. And so this multi-year project was in collaboration with UAMA, the Meadows Museum and the Kimball Art Museum, which is in Fort Worth uh, and which has a state-of-the-art conservation lab. And so we brought all the panels to Fort Worth. Uh, Claire Berry, who's um, uh, the director of conservation there, did very, with her team, did very extensive technical analysis. So we looked at what the pigments were made out of and underdrawing and things like that. and. Um, other members of the team, Barbara Anderson, myself, um, did the art historical research on them as well. And then they were, it was all published in that book. So, which I edited and contributed to, but. I enjoyed it a lot. The, the pictures Oh, you are, read it, eh? Uh, I skimmed it. read it cover to cover? Yeah. No, I did not. I won't lie to you. But I, the, the the pictures and the panels are incredible. And the, the <laughs> you looked at the pictures. Hey, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did the bare minimum. No, that's great. But the infrared technology is pretty impressive. That you can look it's underneath cool. and see this the original sketching of yeah. some of these artists. And it seemed it seemed like that's that tell who did what, right? Because everyone has every artist has their own uh, methods and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you know one of the kind of biggest discoveries probably of the project was that it it kind of nuanced our view of how these large altarpieces were made. I mean, we knew workshops were involved, but as ever, nothing's as simple as it seems. And so um, I think what it what it showed us was that this kind of workshop process is extremely dynamic. And so when you try to attribute a painting or assign an author to it, you know, you're looking at this, the painted surface, 
but once you can see below the surface and you see that underdrawing, there's kind of a different level of, of attribution. And so you could have a panel that is designed by one individual and painted by another. Um, and so, you know, it might make your, want to tear your hair out, but, but, um, but that was, I would say, one of the best uh, discoveries. And what was nice about the exhibition itself is, you know, it's kind of hard to see in the book, it's hard to see that underdrawing. You can see it better in some of the details. But in the exhibition, we actually had full-size infrared uh, reflectogram mosaics on light boxes. Um, so it, it was a really nice way to kind of highlight the, the, the artist's draftsmanship, not just the, the painting. And it's a real treasure to have right there in Tucson. So go see it. 